and this is again, as soon as you talk about masculinity or femininity or masculine feminine, I mean, I should say all of this just before I get to the beyond the hero, all of, all of this inquiry is happening in the wake of something that has already happened. <laughs> and maybe that's one way to say it. Right. And, and that happening is, is like Stephen Jenkinson would say, and you know, it's like, uh, uh, putting up your tent, you know, in, in a valley, um, not realizing that it's actually a crater. Mm, wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, I feel what all, so much of this conversations are actually about. They're actually happening in a crater of something that's already happened. And what's the happening, you know, that I've also been able to track. I mean, more broadly, just say the, just the utter wake of, I mean, colonization, calamity, displacement, Mm -hmm. right. And essentially like a a total uh, tribal breakdown. Hey everybody, hope you're doing well this morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you choose to listen to this podcast. I really hope you're doing okay out there. In this episode, I speak with Ian McKenzie. Ian is a visionary filmmaker, storyteller, and host of the Mythic Masculine podcast. He returned to the podcast, this is the third time he's been on here, to discuss manhood, mythology, and emerging masculinities in our time. And I just want to say that this being the third time that Ian has been on the podcast, I've been really looking forward to having him on again, uh, having scheduled this interview out a little ways in advance. And, you know, sometimes when I schedule something, uh, of course, you know, you clear your schedule for that particular time, obviously, but you don't really know what's going to be happening in your life around that time. And sometimes the timing is really good. You know, it's, it's weirdly good because it's the kind of conversation that you need to have at that particular time, you know? And uh, that's one of the interesting things about doing this podcast is sometimes those conversations happen and they have more impact and meaning, for me at least, uh, when those types of interviews line up with whatever the hell's going on in your life, you know? So, As I mentioned there, Ian is the host of the Mythic Masculine podcast. Uh, It's a really great podcast that I would really recommend everyone here to check out. He has some really excellent interviews with some really excellent people, talking about some very good subjects revolving around, as I mentioned there, uh, mythology or or kind of the mytho-poetic movement surrounding masculinity and manhood that, of course, largely emerged out of Robert Bly's work with uh, his book Iron John. Um, and several other authors and very influential figures that Ian mentions in this interview. Uh, So he's kind of carrying the torch a little bit in that regard, in that he's at least contributing to the broader work surrounding men's work. What does that mean, men's work? Of course, I have had something of an aversion, if I could say that. Maybe not an aversion, but it's a complicated thing when you're talking about men's work because there are lots of elements of that that, are very beautiful and be very good. And I think men need to have this work, right? We need to have work. We need to work on ourselves. We need to figure out where we fit in all of this now. I think there's a lot of the narratives around what it means to be a man 
or what it even is to be a man, uh, a lot of those narratives are being challenged and are disintegrating to a great degree. And I think that's actually not a bad thing, but it still doesn't change the fact that men need to do a certain kind of work to figure out what it means to embody masculinity, uh, to embody manhood in the most holistic, integrative, and embodied way possible, right? And that is a lot of what this discussion is about with Ian, because I've very much appreciated the work he's done with the Mythic Masculine podcast, the work that he's done also with his incredible films that he's produced, which we have discussed in previous interviews. And we talk a lot about well, let me just go over a little bit uh, of the description that I wrote up for this episode, which is that Ian and I attempt to navigate the complexities and shadows of men's work in our time of emerging inquiries and contemplation about gender identity and expression. We wholeheartedly acknowledge that as necessary as those discussions are, as vital as they may be, we must ask, where do men fit in this? Ian and I are both what can be described as cisgendered and fairly heteronormative in our relationship styles, situated on a spectrum that has traditionally benefited folks such as ourselves in very concrete and obvious ways. And that reality is not contested by either of us. But as we expand upon this discussion, the patterns of behavior and beliefs that accompany men through their lives extremely limit them in their relationships, both with others and with themselves, and in their development through the various stages of adulthood. The patterns of domination manipulation and violence that characterize so much of how men engage with those around them stem from deep wounds that must be looked at and addressed. And Ian and I delve into these subjects with honesty, and I ask Ian to express what he has learned on his path exploring these subjects with his work in film and the Mythic Masculine podcast. Okay, I feel like that was a good summary of what we get into in this interview. This was really just a heartfelt discussion, and I really appreciated Ian for going there with me. I just want to say, to reiterate this point, this is a very personal thing for me, but I think that this extends to so many others that would identify themselves as men in this time. We live in a very difficult moment, (laughs) and we have for a long time. It's not like it's necessarily that, that it hasn't been difficult for men in the past, and it's not about focusing exclusively on just the suffering of men, but we're trying to have a really honest discussion about what it means to be a man in this time and a lot of the complexities and difficulties and nuances of navigating this time of increasing confusion of i would say some something like hostility actually between individuals and between people you know we don't live in a culture that knows what to do with these bigger questions that we have around gender and gender expression and what it means to be for instance a man We don't have rites of passage. We don't have elders, really, in our culture to guide men through the necessary processes, stages to become men in the proper sense of the word. As much as we're having this broader discussion around gender, which I think, again, is very important, men are still here and we have a place in this and there's a lot of work that we need to be doing, taking on the responsibility of what it is to be a man in this time And that is a deeply significant subject for me, and it becomes even more significant as time goes on. So I will obviously uh, continue to revisit the subject as I continue to do this work, 
And I think if you're at all curious about this subject, I would really recommend checking out Ian's work. You can do that by going to his website, ianmack.com. That is Ian, I-A-N, Mac, M-A-C-K, dot com. Uh, You can read his essays. You can check out his short films, his full-length films as well at that website. And if you want to listen to his excellent podcast and subscribe to it, The Mythic Masculine, you can go to the website, themythicmasculine.com. Yeah, please just go subscribe. And if you want to, of course, go support his work. You can do that by going to that website and learning more there. And if you want to learn more about my work specifically, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be on that website. If you would like to support this work financially on a regular monetary basis, you can do that through two means. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal or through Venmo. You can go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at LastBornPodcast. You can throw a few bucks my way through those. That would be very appreciated. And if you would like to support my work on a regular monthly or yearly basis, really sustain this work, you can do that through Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. By going there, contributing however much you want to contribute a month or a year, you will gain early access to these interviews before they are released publicly. You'll gain access to some other exclusive content as well. Anyway, everybody, this is episode 299. I don't normally say, like, the episode number on these things, but this is episode 299. I really was intentional in making sure this was the cap on the end of, like, my 200s, the 200s episodes, and uh, episode 300 will be coming soon, and that will be something special. It'll be a big thing, I think. I I don't know. It's not going to be a traditional interview or anything like that. I'm going to probably feature a lot of different things on it, but it's going to be a bit of a exploration of the work that I've done up to this point through the past 100 episodes, and I'm really excited to get to work on that. So anyway, thank you so much, everybody, for your attention. Without any further delay, here is my interview with Ian McKenzie. Well, Ian, thanks for coming on the podcast again. I think we have it set up now where you come on every like one and a half years, I think, <laughs> something like that. It's like these intervals. Um, I I uh, think the last time I had you on was a bit, yeah, about a year and a half ago and you had released, or you were working on getting a documentary uh, funded um, mm. about Tamara, I believe, The Love School. Exactly. Yeah. There, I think we talked about Love School as well as Lost Nation Road. Right? The yeah, that's right. With Stephen and Gregory Hoskins. Yeah. 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 And um, that was a great discussion. We talked about that community that um, they called an eco village in uh, Portugal and that you had went and uh, worked on a film kind of just exploring what they're doing there um, involving relationship. And uh, and it's been, you know, I remember, I think I listened to an interview you did with one of the founders of that community Mm. Can't remember their name, but I yeah, really was it, enjoyed was it that. Benjamin von Mendelssohn from the Love I think School? so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that that interview uh, when that came out. But and that's just to say that in that time since we did the last interview, you have started your own podcast, The Mythic Masculine, mm-hmm. which I think has been uh, beautiful to see the, what you've done with that and the subjects you're exploring and the depth of the conversations you're having on there, and. 
uh, I just commend you for it. So congratulations mm. for putting that together. You always seem to put out really quality stuff. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. I mean, in some ways it grew from our conversation from the first, very first episode. Where oh, yeah. I think you asked me about masculinity and, um, yeah. you know, I've been a filmmaker obviously for a number of years. And so I've been doing interviews and, and yet, you know, there was that interview where I, I was able to sort of riff more widely on what I was learning and what I was inquiring about around masculinity. And then uh, I was, I had the opportunity to interview the directors, one of which was a sort of loose acquaintance of mine of the Jordan Peterson film, uh, which came out, I guess, what about a year, year and a half ago. And so again, I, cause I interviewed them cause I was actually just curious to look at, you know, that phenomenon around him and, and masculinity and, then I was like, well, I don't have anywhere to put it. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll make a podcast. So with a little bit of both was part of the inspiration. So I appreciate that from your, you know, curiosity. Yeah. And I, that's funny. You just said, when you mentioned Dorda Peterson, it just like this thing kicks on. Cause I, I have a, I have a bit of a visceral reaction to that person because of some of the associations he has and some of the ideas he has. But I also appreciate the other reason I just re- I realized that I appreciate your work is that there's a reason why so many people are attracted to Jordan Peterson and what he's talking about around mythology and mas- the masculine and feminine and all these things he's discussing. And, and while again, I don't, I don't like him, I will say personally speaking, I understand his appeal. And I think that that space that he's trying to occupy needs to be occupied by people who are maybe a little more, I would say a little more responsible in my, this is my opinion, of course, um, and how they're talking about certain subjects. Um, and I think that you and those that you bring onto your podcast and the other work that you've done with your films are people that I feel like should occupy that space because I think you're doing it in a far more nuanced and um, mm. intricate way that I think mm. Peterson just is not doing or can't do or won't do. That's just my my take anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to offer too. I mean, I, I, I ignored the whole conversation around him for a while. This is mm-hmm. maybe two years ago, three years ago, because it was, you know, getting quite popular. And so initially, I was quite like, I don't want to. I, I sort of deliberately avoid anything that's too popular. And then, sure. and then I dipped in actually after a little bit because then I was like, wow, he's so contentious. And then I started to, you know, actually do the research and listen. And and then I was like, oh wow, there's a lot here actually, and a lot of things that were really interesting about what he has said. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was also tracking like w- the phenomenon and, you know, because I think at the time magazine, uh, a number of years ago said, you know, he was the most influential Western philosopher or thought leader, you know, um, yeah. at the time. So that's quite a significant claim I would say. Right. And so I don't want to also say that therefore I sort of, you know, jumped on the, the bandwagon. I mean, I, I do think he says interesting things and yeah, a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff. I'm like, come on, buddy. Uh, <laughs> like he, he, yeah. uh, Gavar Mate said uh, something, I think on maybe it's Joe Rogan's podcast, but he's like, he has a lot of repressed rage. Yeah. <laughs> this is what sure. Gavar Mate said. And I was like, well, that feels true. Um, yeah. Also, I'll just say that he, I think he's very ingenuous, ingenuous, I mean, is that a word? To some of the opposition um, that yeah. he, he sort of, builds a lot of straw mans around a lot of the activists left that feels mm-hmm. just too much, too much caricaturizing, caricaturizing, you know, cardboard cutouts of it. And, and for someone as with his adeptness and, and intellect, I would feel like he could be a little more generous with how he characterizes the opposition. And um, anyway, so it's a complex figure and, and yeah, more, more recently over the last few months too, I've certainly leaned out and been like, okay, you know, he, he has some things to say. And also there's some huge shadow. And so, yeah. um, you know, I've stepped away from, 
really giving him much more of a platform. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's fair. That's a fair assessment, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and again, it's like these people that have, they're complex. And so you want to appreciate maybe the complexity of who they are and what they're presenting. But then there are certainly aspects, the word I would use is problematic, problematic elements of them that I don't know what to, I know what to do with, I should, which is to say speak out against it. But also, again, speaking to what I said earlier, like this is why I'm appreciative of what you're doing because it is, I, I don't like some of the reactions to Peterson in the sense that they're dismissing the very real pull that he has for young men. Because if I don't want to speak like young men don't have certain privileges and all this, you know, there's a whole dialogue around this, but they're, they're really fucking lost. And there's a lot of confusion that I really relate with. And our culture doesn't have a lot of space for them to move in a direction that I think needs to happen for us to really, truly come to a place of maybe healing or integration or, mm. you know, looking at that shadow or that darkness that's there. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think, again, I just want to say like, I get why people don't like him. I feel the same, but we need to appreciate the phenomenon that is Peterson and figure out what's going on there with him and the people that are attracted to him. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good segue possibly to some of the threads I've been able to track down now, having done the podcast now, Mythic Masculine, for about a year and a half. And and it's been really profound journey, actually, you know, from yeah. certain certain threads that I already had some experience with and some some you know awareness of, being able to speak with some phenomenal people who I feel have really helped uh, craft this tapestry, you know, of of a whole approach to the moment. And I would say, yeah, more recently I've begun to even recognize, like it's become more visible to me of like, Oh, uh, like the, the, the tapestry itself has become more visible and in my ability to sort of navigate and zoom in on and zoom out and, and speak to different areas, you know, has become more, uh, more accessible to me. So, you know, I, I think one element that comes to mind just around this moment is, you know, toxic masculinity is still often used as a frame. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's, uh, depending on who's using it as well, um, can have different perspectives, different charges on it. And I'm just thinking now of the conversation I had with Tyson Young Comporta for who wrote Sand Talk, right? Who, mm-hmm. you know, my conversation with him, he said, toxic masculinity is a bad story, mm-hmm. right? Not that, not that certain behaviors uh, aren't rife and, you know, trespass against women from, and violence from men, largely all of that's true and he's not saying that's not true he's just saying that you know it's, it's it's not a good story and the more that i've also unpacked that too from this level of of myth and story and culture like what is real culture i recognize that you know i think that the the deepest um sort of lament there or the the grief is really that toxic masculinity is what is what happens when you don't have culture mm. really is it maybe the way to say it and that when particularly men are left to, you know, cobble together some uh, way of seeing the world and themselves um, and repress, you know, or, or suppress uh, and be broken by a system of domination, as Rian Eisler talks about, you know, mm-hmm. who wrote The Chalice and the Blade and other books, um, then that's what you get. So in some ways, it's like to identify just the symptoms of toxic masculinity 
um, doesn't really address the deeper root causes, right? Which again, are like the lack of rites of passage, the lack of, I don't know, proper male role models, the lack of a sort of cultural way of life that actually is aligned with life instead of what feels often like fundamentally opposed to it, right? So it really is, um, it's sort of programmed in by so many so many ways, right? That And this is what we get. So for me, it's really illuminated, you know, the kind of cultural absences that uh, have been missing now. And, and depending on where you talk to, I've been missing for some time. And there's reasons for that too, which can be traced, I think, historically, culturally, mythically. And that's really what I've tried to yeah, pursue in the podcast. Yeah. So I'm curious about I guess what compelled you to start this project? I know you talked about our first interview and I am sure that this just was one of, I'm sure there's many things that led you to this, but I, I think what we talked about maybe before we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, which is that we can talk about it in a general, a generalizing sense. Um, but there's, is a personal thing too, because we're both men. And, uh, I, I think I may have said this as well, that, for me, my coming to terms with maybe how I, who I am and that I am a man um, is in within a context of a time in which questions around gender and gender expression is like a really big thing. And I think it's absolutely necessary to have those conversations. So, you know, I, I think also like whether you're born, let's say you're born queer or you're born trans and you have these... Um, this the, trying to live in a society such as ours is very difficult. So coming to terms with that is a whole process. But I also think if you're heteronormative or cisgender, there's also a process of coming to terms with what that means for you as well. It may not be as rife with like threats of violence, of course, or any of those types of things that uh, people who are who are not cisgendered or heteronormative would experience. But there is this like real sense of like. You know, I have to be a certain way and there's a certain category or box that I have to fit into. And uh, my own personal experiences with coming to terms with masculinity or my own masculinity or or manhood or whatever has been like that, like feeling that I've had an aversion towards it and not really taking responsibility for it because to me, I've associated men most of my life as being what we would call, you know, the bad story of toxic masculinity. Like I've, I have not seen very many good examples in my life of like what it means to be a man in the most embodied, fullest sense of that. And so I wonder how much of this work you do exploring masculinity and what it means to be a man in that sense is tied to your maybe quest to figure that out for yourself. Like, um, you know, with all of these questions around, you know, what is, what is gender and how is gender expressed in all of these subjects? I think that needs to be directed towards men in a certain way, because like we're here, we're not going to go away and we're, we need to have these like kind of conversations as well. I don't know if these make questions make any sense in yeah. any comprehensive way. Cause it's kind of, hmm. I think I mentioned before we started, I'm in a pretty like weird emotional place at this exact moment but anyway I, these are a lot of thoughts i've been having and i'm trying to sure. spill them onto you and hope may hopefully they make some kind of sense to you so i guess in your own personal journey how has this like project of yours helped you like come to terms with some of these mm -hmm. questions or subjects i sort of threw at you there yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking now of a conversation I had with a, a author. Um, I think he's a professor as well in San Francisco. His name is Alan Chinnan. And he wrote a book called Beyond the Hero, which came out after Iron John, uh, mm-hmm. a few years after. Uh, Bly, I believe Robert Bly, who wrote Iron John, or he wrote the book Iron John, um, he, he, he supported with the manuscript there as well. So in some ways, it was like a lineage continuity from, from Iron John, which those who read the book know that it is largely a, a story about initiation from boy to manhood. Uh, and when was sort of foundational in the the text that kicked off the first wave mythopoetic men's movement. And of course, another major one was um, King War, Magician Lover. Uh, so Beyond the Hero, which is very, a lot less known. And I, I somebody recommended it. I think a listener, I posted it and I, I found it and I was like, wow, this is really incredible. Because what it does is it looks at the journey after. So from more like midlife of, of sort of masculine stories and one thing he talks about there as well is this uh, sequence that men actually go through um, or seem to seem to go through, which is um, this, they start uh, sort of as boys and, and there's a sort of adolescent masculinity, right? Like um, if we're talking uh, again, a culture, and this is, again, as soon as you talk about masculinity or femininity or masculine feminine, I mean, I should say all of this just before I get to the beyond the hero, all of, all of this inquiry is happening in the wake of something that, has already happened. And maybe that's one way to say it. Right. And, and that happening is, is like Stephen Jenkinson would say, and you know, it's like, uh, uh, putting up your tent, you know, in, in a valley, um, not realizing that it's actually a crater. Mm, wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, I feel what all, so much of this conversations are actually about. They're actually happening in a crater of something that's already happened. And what's the happening, you know, that I've also been able to track. I mean, more broadly, just say the, just the utter wake of, I mean, colonization, calamity, displacement, Mm -hmm. right? And essentially like a a total uh, tribal breakdown. And and when I say tribal in this case, I mean, not how it's used often in modern day context is a kind of tribalism, right? Which is a sort of uh, only adhering to a certain identity group, I think. Mm -hmm. Whereas I mean tribe in the sense of like distinct peoples. And, you know, conversations I have with indigenous folk who still have connection and lived reality with their intact lineages, you know, they often just say, well, this is, you know, this is what our people do, you know, about whatever we happen to be talking about. Well, this is what our people do. Uh, They rarely seem to say to me, you know, everyone should do this, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone should be doing what we do. Because there's a particular kind of humility, but also a knowing who they are, I think, that comes with when one understands oneself to be part of a discernible people and connected to a place. And so that's what I'm trying to say is like, you know, we're kind of in the wake of uh, a sort of the, the suffering and the uh, pain of, of living under some kind of universal, right? Mm-hmm. Which one could say that the, the sort of distinct binary that um, those who grew up in modern culture are sort of forced into, and, and often the term comes out of uh, that this is patriarchy, like a sort of distinct and, and enforced binary of, you know, these types of behaviors are okay for men, these ones aren't, right. and for women it's this. And of course, queer and non-binary have a very hard time because they don't fit in that picture. They're, they're actually sort of erased from that picture, sometimes, you know, are often by force. Yeah. And so if that's, that's, the, that's the crater, I guess I'm trying to say. So what, what is helpful to know, I think, is that the, the natural response to uh, a sort of, um, I don't know, violent, suppressive universal can be often to try to create another universal, 
right? Which which makes sense because it's like, oh, well, this isn't working, this universal. So we need a different universal that is more inclusive. Uh, that is, you know, and it, what it sounds like, I think often is, you know, you you can be whatever you want to be, right? Like that's the triumph often is like, well, you can just, you know, there was some video I saw a little while ago by, I think it was uh, a young person who was, I think, coming out as non-binary. Um, and they, their sort of triumphal statement was sort of, you can decide who whoever you want to be. Uh, and in some ways it does sound like a victory, you know, to the, in the face of a system that would tell you to be a certain way. Right. And yet there's something else I think there below, which is almost like it's still a triumph of this individual, uh, sense of oneself as supreme, right. Which when you talk to other, again, peoples that have a certain deeper communal collective, uh, understanding of the world and an interdependent understanding of the world, you know, they don't necessarily consider the supremacy of the self as some kind of triumph, right? They actually see that that's, there's a deep loss there when you don't see yourself as a deeply relational being who actually relies on the feedback of others, like the loving feedback and, you know, the, the mentors and the elders to track you and to like name your medicine and, you know, all that kind of stuff I feel gets lost when, you know, the victory is I decide who I am and, you know, you know anybody else doesn't matter. Um, so I just, I'll say that to then get back to now to beyond the <laughs> sure. hero. Yeah. So what he talks about is then that men have this journey that they seem to take, which is that they start with, you know, as an adolescent, uh, sort of adolescent masculinity. And then they have this, uh, f- he calls it the fear and fascination of the feminine, right? Which I love that phrasing, the fear and the fascination, because again, it's this like, oh, it's not me. It's this other, this mysterious other. And of course, when, puberty kicks in and often if there is this uh heterosexual orientation of course then there is this mysterious draw and and attraction and then also yeah this fascination and this fear and he says it's really important as this then uh exploration into the feminine which for me when i track on my story i think that's absolutely true right like i uh this whole journey i i spent for about four maybe six years i think total uh exploring amplify her Right, which is the project that ended up being really a, a look at the rise of the feminine uh, through the lives of artists, DJs, and producers, female DJs and producers, um, of which mm-hmm. I was a co-director on the project. And for me, th- that was also my immersion into feminine archetypes. And you know, reading Marion Woodman, women who dance with uh, women who run with wolves, um, dancing in the flames, looking at a lot of gender theory and all this. That does not make me an expert at all. It just means that yeah, I, I tried to really understand as much as I could. Um, and from that experience, I then reve- re- revealed the depth of what I didn't know about masculinity. And then that became my journey into, oh, I found Iron John, my grandfather's study quite auspiciously and uh, launched you know, in, into my own sort of like, oh, wow, why hadn't I looked at this before, right? Which again is part of that veil of, uh, of la- like being unable to really see oneself from that lens that has permeated the culture and you know, less so now, depending on who you talk to, that you know, this kind of mythic lens has been uh, reignited, right? So it feels uh, more accessible, I think, for men now, uh, particularly, you know, when they're ready. Bly says usually around 30, 35 is when they kind of have a, you know, their their best intent, you know, in their 20s onward seems to have turned to ash, and, you know, and they, they ask questions then again of like, whoa, who am I actually, you know, and, you know, what is authentic? And, all that stuff. And so, you know, there's a certain mysterious timing to things. So I'll just say that, yeah, that this fascination and fear of the feminine. And then on the other side of that, I'll just end with this. He just says, then there's this uh, 
inquiry or contact made what's what he calls the deep masculine, which is, again, a whole other territory, which is really great to go down if you want to get there. But maybe I'll just pause and, uh, yeah, see what you think. Yeah, well, you know, I think I, I just want to say, like, the this progression you're talking about, I, I just resonated with it. Because what I thought I knew in my 20s is just totally fucking disintegrated <laughs> to the point where it's really, it's, it's, it's upsetting. It's been an upsetting thing because it's, it's like, a, it's like learning that everything I thought I knew about myself isn't really as solid as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's just a lot of threads there that I almost want to follow. I'm trying to think of where to go with this right now. Mm. Um, Bly calls that the road of ashes, by the way. Okay. The, the descent yeah. to ashes. Yeah. Which is that kitchen work he calls it when you when you're sifting through the ashes of you know your good intentions and ideas of yourself but as necessary work yeah there's and there is that thing and i and i had to a certain aspect of growing up or a certain maturity which is good intentions are fine but like that doesn't change your behavior the behaviors of your past or your present and how that's impacted people you care about and how that's affected relationships Mm. and there's like a real like real hard thing there it's a really deep pain and that's the thing i've been like grappling with over the past few years is this like not sure where to go or how to proceed anymore with this because it's really easy to see all the things wrong with men today i see it everywhere i go i see it in myself and um it feels like there's just a giant hole there Mm. this like void that never got attended to or acknowledged for so long and now i'm in my 30s i'm 32 right now and it's like anyone who's gotten close enough to me has seen that void and (laughs) then they don't know what to do with that and i don't know what to do with it either so it's like and i know that that's tied to being a man in some way i know it has something to do with that and so this place I'm in currently is, is acknowledgement of that. And so this whole journey of, of men, so to speak, it seems to be tied to that. And it's like health, a real culture, healthy culture seems to acknowledge that thing that boys or men need in order to grapple with that thing inside of them. That just seems to be what it feels to me. And I'm like, and this is the fear I have this like horrifying fear, which is that, is it too late? Like, is it too late for me? Is it too late for others? Mm. What do I do with this thing? I mean, is it just going to eat everything up that I care about, you know, and the thing that I want the most, you know, will I never attain that thing, you know? So it's, it's this, this journey you're talking about is really like connecting with me. I just, I don't know if you've related with that feeling at all. Could you describe um, it a little more too? Like you said, this void, and now do you mean like a sort of uh, existential angst, or or sort of a blanket of depression, or you know, is there? Yeah, sure. It's it? kind of all of those things. Sometimes it's a, um, it can come. It's it's a. Uh, I think it's honestly, it's a. There's a bit of a trauma there, so a lacking of something in my childhood. It's not about blame. I'm not. I'm past the point of blaming anybody for this. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of like lacking something, not having men in my life, for instance, like I've had a lot of nurturing women. That's been 
no issue. I've had a lot of nurturing women and beautiful human beings, not just nurturing women, other nurturing men too, but just nurturing people. Mm. But then the, the other side of that has been wholly lacking, I think, in many cases. I've seen more than anything disappointment from men. They've fallen short in like every way that's meaningful, except in like, oh, I can pay for things or I can like take care of like material needs and that's mm. it. Mm-hmm. And that spawned this like complex and it's led to this confused confusion about my relationship with myself and my own gender and my own expression of ma- masculinity or, or being a man. And then also my confusion around how to be in like intimate relationship with people. Like that's the whole, the whole is like, I will never have enough because I can't get, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it any other way. And it manifests in all kinds of dysfunctional behaviors, um, addictive patterns and so on, Mm. which I'm currently trying to like, like deal with Mm -hmm. personally speaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does that, does that answer it at all? Yeah, I think so. so. You know, I mean, it can can manifest as depression for sure. Just a blanket of like, I don't know what to do anymore with my life. And I don't know if there's any point of going on. Like that's the worst end of it, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I mean, what comes to me is just a, I mean, uh, I think what Martin Schaffer said this, but he was, I think he was quoting Rumi, but he said, uh, you know, when you haven't become, when you haven't been fed, become bread. Hmm. And there's something in that with, like you said, like, how do you turn what you never got into something, right? And and in that sense, there's the invitation there, which is, which is formidable, you know, to to traverse the gap of which properly in a, and by that sort of birthright would have come to you the presence of men in your life in that certain way those that would have gathered you in at a certain age generally around 13 14 right taking you out to the wild or somewhere where you can have an encounter with the great mystery um which you know i'm in i'm currently in a four-year cycle of which i'm in the last one and so i have some time in with this and again, it doesn't make me an expert at all. It just means like I have a little bit of experiential um, sense of what that is to be essentially like properly and and sort of compassionately, but firmly uh, brought to the the end of you, hmm. right? And in some sense, it is a kind of trauma. It certainly would be probably to that age, like 13, 14. Whereas later in life, when people participate in these things like wilderness vigils and things, you know, you can certainly go through a lot. Um, but it, it it doesn't have perhaps generally that same sense of utter world endingness um, that that perhaps a youth would have, right? When when, be, when they really are like, what is happening? I don't, you know, I, yeah. I can't put this together. So it, it is in some sense, it's like meaningful trauma. Hmm. Uh, in, in that, it's something that is traumatizing to basically be brought to the edge of you. Um, but in a village context where people properly would have helped you make meaning of that, right, and would have said, "This is what it's you know inviting you into a bigger story that you're not the center of the universe," and yeah. thank goodness you're not the center of the universe, actually, right? That yeah, that, right. You, but you're part of it. You're part of that story, and then you would have been welcomed in, likely into some you know way of of meaningful service to both the you know the community and to life itself. And so in some sense, like, you know, you're, I think you're speaking truly, you're testifying to this existential void, which is the, it is intelligent. And then it points to something that's not there. Right. And so, like you said, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ways in which the the coping strategies kick in. And yeah, certainly for me too, oftentimes it's like busyness. It's like, 
stay mm-hmm. busy, right? For a lot of people, that is that's another way of of kind of keeping it, you know, at bay. Um, and I have to say that, yeah, there's no way around it in the sense that you actually have to go into it. I, I think, and but I'm drawing from other modalities, like um, you know, Stephen Jenkinson said too one time that uh, depression is what happens when grief isn't allowed in the room. Hmm. Right. That that actually depression uh, and actually drawing from another uh, fellow. I interviewed uh, Clinton Callahan. He talks about depression as the mix of uh, anger and sadness. That actually those two, and it's almost like the they're stuck both trying to get out the door at the same time, and so in that mixing, they they become almost this uh, debilitating uh, yeah. f- emotion or a debilitating force, right? Whereas, like Clinton, he advocates for demixing emotions, where he's like, I physically, you know, kind of do this like, uh, and like pull them <laughs> apart. And then you can go fully into the anger, right? Hopefully, and there's like practices that he offers. And then you can go fully into the sadness. And then mm-hmm. like it moves and they're not like stuck in the doorway still. So yeah, I guess I, I want to depathologize a little bit, I think, of what you're speaking to because, I mean, it's it's true in that. Like, yeah, there's a lot that wasn't there that should have been. There's a lot of grief in that and a lot of anger in that, that it wasn't the case. And that on the other side of that, hopefully, is this willingness to say, okay, well, if I didn't get it, what's needed to plant the seeds for the generations to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a matter of like, I, I have been, uh, I guess since last year, I, I've seen a really great therapist, someone who's mm. very, very, very good. Um, and she, she said something that was really interesting because I was doing this thing where that void I was talking about, what I do is I can direct that, towards a partner or somebody close to me wanting them to attend to that, you know? Yeah. And then she was like, well, try to imagine your aunt, like, don't imagine, like visualize your ancestors behind you. You're carrying that from them. Like they've, you're bearing that responsibility and that weight. So like turn it away from your partner and turn it towards the people, your ancestors, because they're the ones that are like, kind of responsible in some way for putting that upon you. Mm. And I mean, I don't know where to go with that, but just even the act of, of, of like visualizing that and shifting it from putting it from someone that I care about to someone that like to actually the, those that have stood behind me that have carried this and I now, and I now bear it as well. So this isn't meant to be a, an ad, admitting futility, although I do feel that oftentimes I can get into that place. It is like, a real thought of like, this is a multi-generational process of untangling, of healing. And I may not get there, but maybe if I have children someday, or if that is even a possibility in the future, which is a whole thing in and of itself. But nonetheless, with that that mindset, that intention of like knowing that we can break chains because you mentioned like it's like setting up a tent, like Stephen Jacobs had said, setting up a tent. What you think as a valley is actually a crater. It's like we are living in the wake of a catastrophic and apocalyptic events that have been around for at least hundreds, however many hundreds of years that we're like playing out into the present. And we have to remind ourselves of that. And we're not separate from that. You know, mm-hmm. we're born into this time, and we don't. I don't think we choose to be born into the times we're born into. We just are. It's like we wake up in the middle of all of this. And we have to like figure it out. <laughs> There's, and it's even harder when there well, isn't really guidelines for it or any like cultural mechanisms or um, frameworks to 
comprehend or make sense of it in any real like good way i think yeah well you just made me think of you know maybe it's a thought experiment but i i had this you know just wondering recently about the city of new york let's say and part of me was like well where you know what is the city of new york right like Mm -hmm. where is it you know is it is it in the buildings which can change a lot you know is it in the I don't know the land, the other landmarks or the, I mean, the parks is it in the animals. Is it in the people who inhabit, who also, you know, there's certain high degree of turnover. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was thinking of my friend uh, who lives in New York for many years um, and, and he's been there throughout COVID as well. And he was just saying, yeah, you know, like Broadway has been shut down and all the things you think of as New York have been shut down. And I'm just wondering again, like, so where is New York? Right. And, yeah. and so I think of this too, in the sense of the wake of, consequence or the wake of things that happened prior um when we think of ourselves as like individual autonomous beings right like which becomes really just uh comical pretty quickly right when you start to wonder or like you start to recognize the influence that everything that happened before has on the present uh and that you know it's almost more helpful for me to think of humans as a particular medium Mm-hmm. right but but what's more primal is it or pr- yeah primal in the sense of uh, uh precedes uh or what is what is moving through us right and the other visual image that came to me or that i you know one time looking at the ocean actually nearby was looking at the waves you know moving into the shore uh and and i think i'd read one time you know the optical illusion is that it, the wave is moving into the shore right like as in the the actual water is moving into the shore, but it's actually not. It's energy that is moving across the medium of the water. And mm. that the actual wave, you know, like if you put a little cork on the water, generally it's just going up and down. Yeah. Uh, right. It's not like that particular, but the, it, it looks like the waves coming in. And so I just say that to say again, like we are, um, I think we put a lot of primacy on our, even our own individual story and consciousness and, and sense of ourselves when in some sense, yeah, we're actually, yeah, we're just, really part of a much bigger story that has been in motion for some time and you know this idea of this many generational project i was speaking with another fellow uh, ramon parish he's a uh, teacher at naropa but in our conversation yeah he, he actually said you know it's interesting if we try to take this big shift that i think we are actually trying to make collectively there is some sense that this is an initiatory moment and that all of these conversations are bound in this in this in this time right and with no uncertainty or no certainty of success but if we don't sort of pit the generations against each other, as can happen, right? That, you know, Gen X is against boomers or millennials against boomers or, you know, like Gen yeah. Z's doing their own thing. And, but actually seeing like, oh, no, 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 we're all part of the same, you know, unfolding and each generation adds their bit or doesn't, right, actually. And this is uh, sort of the great spirit work of each generation that I think Carl Jung talked about, that if a generation doesn't do the spirit work, it accrues to the generations to come. And so I would also say that, yeah, the unwillingness to turn towards this very existential void that you're talking about, which is part of the larger kind of cultural void, means that we've been sort of, uh, there's been a great abdication of that effort, I think, in, in previous generations. And I do see the, the signs of the, that the willingness has arrived for many. Uh, and for many, not. You know, it's still very much, you know, off the radar. Yeah, and do you how do you see that manifesting in particular with men coming to this? Because I do think that so much of this has an enormous consequence for men in the sense that 
there are, I do feel a lot of men are coming to it and um, they have to, you know, but this, this thing you're talking about, this recognition of this multi-generational work that needs to happen. I feel like so much of it, it's not about men like specifically, but because we are men and we're having a conversation about men, I think that we're, I think it would be convenient to exclude men from the picture as if it's like men as the thing is an aberration that can be done away with. But it doesn't seem like that's the case at all. Like it, like men are a part of the picture and have to be a part of the picture. But part of the picture, being part of the picture means that men have to do this work. It's not like relying on women or relying on others to do it for us. This has to be done like amongst us. And so how do you see that happening or... Or how are you participating in that in your own way? Yeah, I, I mean, I draw a little bit too on the experiences I've had in some men's organizations, such as Mankind Project, uh, Sacred Sons, you know, and, and tracking what I see more broadly in, uh, I don't know, group process and, and lots of ways in which there's a focus on embodiment, focus on movement, focus on, you know, waking up feeling again. And I do think that these are edge points, certainly for men who grow up in a culture where, yeah, largely they had to repress and suppress um, and lost great capacity to feel, you know, the fullness of emotion and even trust emotion, which is, you know, again, like an edge point for me that I'm still learning is like not trying to separate from the emotional realm as if there's some sort of, you know, weakness, which also gets projected on women as irrational or weak when they're in a more emotional expression, which obviously has healthy and unhealthy ways too. Um, but I think for a lot of men, yeah, just that core waking up those faculties again is largely like the, the, the groundwork, really, because then from there, you know, with those faculties uh, accessible, then you can start to make more um, uh, decisions based on contact, right? Based, instead of based on, you know, numbness or, or checking out and disconnection and all the rest. So, you know, I think that's one big piece as well. And then, I mean, also, you, this is a bit of my... I don't know, opposition or chafing to a lot of men's work as it's presented now, which can ride on a lot of the personal growth mania, right? Where it becomes this, you know, biohacking and and optimization and, you know, a lot of machine style metaphors, uh, which, which does have merit in the sense that if it, you know, inspires a kind of um, vitality to, to come forth, you know, obviously that can be useful, but I also think that it can sort of, it can be it can be shared sort of devoid of a, a economic or like structural analysis right of the current moment and like some emphasis on seven figure you know income uh without any kind of historical cultural analysis of well where does that come from or like where does money come from actually or do you know what i mean like yeah. can can really be you know uh, uh, just riding on top of this be the best you could be um but but damn the consequence right so which also to me is another just an adolescent spiral once again. So that's where I'm looking often to myth because I do think that it provides a way into a lot of these things, which isn't as prescriptive as a lot of this other stuff can be, which again, looping back to even Jordan Peterson, you know, the whole 12 rules for life. And now he's, you know, next book, 12 more rules. I mean, you know, that, that kind of like prescriptive, uh, uh, this is, this is the way it is sort of stuff, I think is also part of that, uh, inability to really wonder, you know, well about certain things, um, which can be a medicine if things feel too in flux and too boundaryless, right? Which is also where there's a certain need for containment and a certain shelter, 
which I think that, yeah, this can, people need, they look to, um, you know, so um, it is a muddy time in that sense that, yeah, there's this desire to want to leap to something that feels a little more tangible, a little more figured out, right? But at the same time, I think we are in like a pretty profound liquid state. And uh, so, you know, maybe Martin Shaw comes to mind again, he says, you know, we're in the time of the wolf, uh, not the horse, something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, ooh, that's good. So, yeah, there's a few more threads. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I think that one of the ways in which uh, this, um, the I'm going to use toxic masculinity, but I, what would be a better way to describe it? I don't even know what the right word would be for it. This sort of negative manifestation of what we think of as like masculine behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, you know, I lean on Rian Eisler's work sometimes when I just say like domination culture. Domination culture. Okay. Because to me, that's a bit more clear about what we're actually talking about. Yeah. Um, And, and that allows for a certain, uh, yeah, just different questions and different wonderings can unfold from that. Yeah, that's, that's good. Okay. So out of domination culture, men, I, I think there's there's a there's a thing i just i've been figuring out how to talk about on the podcast and uh it involves like discussion around pornography in general because of the i think the impacts that it's had on because i think we need to acknowledge the time we're in and we need to acknowledge like the profound impact this thing which i have no like issue with in a general like pornography is an expression of sexual sexual acts and that's just whatever like people have been doing that forever they've been depicting sex for as long as human beings could artistically represent pretty much anything and i think this subject is fraught for a lot of reasons because we can get into a conversation specifically about sex work and uh not shaming sex workers trying to like figure out how to live in a capitalist economy and trying to do this thing and you know questions around all of these things around shame and it's just like this whole bundle of complex things but there is this like very specific thing i want to talk about which is how um, men are shaped by their environments and shaped by the types of stimuli that they receive from their environments. And again, growing up in a time of like information saturation, like we have instantaneous access to anything. I mean, like, you know, we have super, like supercomputers in our phones, you know, in our uh, pockets. So it's this thing where it's shaped entire generations of, of young people into adulthood Mostly, I would say what we would define as boys or men, although that isn't 100% the case, but that tends to lean in that direction more than anything. And I'm just, I guess I, I've, I've had a lot of complex feelings about it over the years and um, trying to grapple with it. So I guess for you and your work, have you explored that subject in any depth as far as like what that represents maybe on a, maybe on a mythic level or, a, or on a archetypal level of like men's relationship with the erotic or Eros um, and why it's such a mm-hmm. difficult subject, you know, and why, why it has such an, you know, particularly now like an addictive quality, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, I haven't, we haven't done a, a direct episode on it. I mean, I have explored things like, again, this, this sort of fascination with the feminine and how it can manifest in different ways, particularly through the, uh, archetype of the addicted lover, mm. um, which can be helpful, I think. And, 
and I'm not saying I'm immune to that, those kinds of elements as well around, I think understanding that maybe like any addiction, generally it's, it's like a, a coping response, right. To, mm-hmm. to something that's uh, not comfortable, let's say, or some a discomfort, right. Or uh, a desire not to feel fully certain things that, you know, may feel more terrible to open or to, to sit in. And so in that sense, I think we can sort of separate pornography from perhaps like, I don't know, the erotic image, let's say, but then how it's experienced, right? Which is often, I would say, a consumptive format, which is also devoid of interactivity, like true interactivity, if we're talking about, again, like the digital image, um, or even the printed image, more so in the Mm -hmm. past. And so uh, the research I've done, too, with some friends that have really spent time in this area they have described how, especially at a young age, like you said, being shaped, particularly young men, uh, will have a, a full-on kind of morphing of certain yeah, chemical uh, pathways and and really, um, in some sense, I, mean, I don't know the whole brain chemistry, but it, maybe it's a dopamine hit or something. But basically this idea that, yeah, like the human brain was not <laughs> not wired to deal with that level of stimuli accessible all the time, 24 hours you know, yeah. like at your fingertips, uh, yeah. which, which, so in that sense, it's actually, it is a, it's a, it's a negative hack in a sense of the body. Um, and I think, I can't remember where I read this and it was, I don't know if it was about this particular subject matter, but it comes to me this sense that, oh yeah. Oh no, maybe it was the social network uh, or sorry, the, uh, the, you know, the social dilemma. I think I might've oh, yeah. said something, right. Yeah. About how it's not about, I don't know what humans are most capable of or sort of on their best days. It's actually the threshold is, like the low point, like the yeah. the most weakness or something like that. And anyway, it comes to me now that this is kind of what it is. So that we've essentially created a system where there's not a lot of true sort of mentorship and intimacy in sexuality in a meaningful way, right? We're just talking about now for young men um, who do have lots of complex feelings, especially when puberty hits and there's you know a lot of confusion and a lot of un- not really adults often or parents that, you know, haven't really done the integration work themselves, don't really know how to talk about it. Uh, and so it stays often a kind of shadowy, in the shadowy realm. Yeah. And uh, Ivan Skellum, this uh, fellow who, who did uh, Reclaim Your Inner Throne, he's his body of work for men, particularly young men too, he talks about how mythically the the basement or the underworld was often, was the place of the feminine, right? The place of the, like the womb, the earth, um, mm. you know, compost, like that kind of dark, chthonic, you know, realm that was, was the place of initiatory, uh, experience, right. Often. Uh, and so there's this deep kind of irony perhaps that oftentimes there is this image of like the boy in the basement, say in the dark, you know, largely playing video games is what we're talking about, you know, lost in this video game world, but then at the same time accessible to this, uh, level of, you know, mainline into pornography often, which again is, um, it's almost like too much feminine in a sense, if that makes sense, right? Too much, but too much of a certain kind of a certain dark feminine. It's a not potent this, thing. What's that? Say again. I was just saying it's potent. It's very yeah, potent. potent, potent. Yeah, in the sense that it's um, it's like distorted, and yeah, and not it's not the feminine that's doing the distortion. It's actually the the system itself which is distorting, and so the true longing I think is actually for intimacy, right? Intimacy sure. with the feminine, and yet this is the substitute that is put forth, which will never actually meet the need, yeah. right? So Charles Eisenstein talks about this too. You know, like civilization offers a lot of pseudo 
needs, right? Belonging and community and all this stuff, but it's through these mechanisms or through these representations, which don't actually meet that core need. And so it perpetuates the cycle. So I think that that's all sort of a helpful context, I think, for oftentimes then what's experienced as personal shame or like personal guilt, personal failing, particularly for men, right? And you know, I think you're testifying a little bit to it as well. When the forces at play are, again, they're vast and well-funded and yeah. uh, and the body was never built to, to deal with this level of stimulation, right, in this sense. So, yeah. so it really is stacked against men. It is. That's what I've like recognized too. It's like I uh, had to come to terms with that. Like there's like there's no, I don't mean and this sounds really fatalist, but like I don't think there's any fucking hope for kids. Like I don't know what it's like now. Like I I grew up on the the wave of like I remember when like Facebook was first becoming a thing. I remember when Google was becoming like the search engine. I remember when YouTube was before it was owned by Google or Alphabet, the parent company, and like that. That's where and I was like the the broad, you know, broadband internet was becoming a thing. Like I was right on the cusp of that, that wave. And like, that was a whole thing, right. Growing up. So I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the environments in which children are being raised and the access they have to this, because I, I don't know what to, I mean, I don't have children and I know you have a child. I don't know how much you think that not about this particular subject, but just the idea of raising a child in this particular time it's just like, what is the, what is there to do with this? It's mm. just so like, I always used to kind of resent, like I grew up with some families um, that were very religious and they were like insulate their children a lot. Like they wouldn't let them watch certain movies and they wouldn't let them use the internet or they'd have very like, very like regimented childhoods. And it was a way to like, protect them supposedly from the world and i thought it was way too much you know it was very mm -hmm. thing but now i'm kind of like to the point where i kind of get it like it, it's not for the religious reasons but just for like the neurodevelopment of children and um how that again and this this does tie into our discussion around men because i think so much of the coming back homeness that we're kind of talking a little bit about you have to deal with some of this stuff we're talking about here. So I do think men's relationship with sexuality and the erotic is like a really powerful and important subject that has to be grappled with. It cannot be separated from the other aspects of that journey. And I think that that's a part of the, the, the work that has to be done too, is just to have a healthy and appropriate relationship with these forces, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, you know, I'm, I, we talked about Tamara in the last interview, so I won't spend too much time there, but they've, you know, I've seen models of what it could look like where, you know, there's not a, uh, a sort of pushing away or a not talking about certain things or, you know, it's giving it proper space, especially for the development of youth um, as they start to have questions around, you know, sexuality and, and the whole area of their own sensual nature, you know, coming online. And I think that, the response for from those in you know modern culture is, it, I think it seems clear that more time in, like more intimacy, is the response, mm. right? If if this thrives in fragmentation and isolation and um, and and lack of contact, then feels to me, you know, it seems to me that contact is is the medicine, uh, connection is the medicine, and I mean it requires already stressed out parents to 
you know, turn to more time in with their kids, let's say, who maybe are resistant to it at first, depending on how the relationship's been. And, and at the same time, you know, struggle to pay the bills and blah, 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 everything else. So you can see like this insane system that we've built, uh, yeah. which, you know, I'm struggling. My partner and I, you know, struggle to even have a moments of just connection with each other in the midst of a two and a half year old, you know, which properly would have been help much more help would have been given by the larger vessel of community. Right. Like sure. it's so clear to me now, like, oh, that was that's a much saner way to to raise children. Uh, yep. And yet people are so busy. Right. So how do you loop them in to want to put that effort in? And I mean, you're you're hit at every turn. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's just it's clear to me like, oh, why, this is why it doesn't happen more often. You know? Yeah. 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 It's a pickle. It's just a big pickle. Um <laughs> But, you know, I, I am seeing a lot of encouraging things. I'm seeing people who are capable of building community. They're doing it. You know, there are these little pockets of sanity that are emerging right now. I see it happening. And I think you're trying to do that, too. It seems like with your work, your podcast and the work you do with men and uh, your films as well. Like there's a actually the cinematic quality of your work is like watching something and in, in the, be- the beauty of film. And I love film the beauty of watching your films is you're like enraptured in this sort of visionary experience. And it's like, you can have this experience of knowing what is possible and what is already possible. Mm. And that's the sense I get from your work a lot is like you call, I think you do call yourself a visionary artist or visionary Mm -hmm. filmmaker of some kind. And yeah, and I think that that's an appropriate word. It sounds, it can sound a little grandiose, but I don't think that's what's going on at all because it's you're presenting a vision with your work or yeah. you're presenting the visions of others through your vision. Yeah. 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 And this is to me where I, you know, I understand that the, the power of the amplifying of a vision or, or possibility through the technology has real potential. You know, I was reading actually recently, I think it was Yuval Harari's, uh, you know, he wrote uh, Homo Deus as well as maybe the, the Sapiens, right? Mm-hmm. Which was uh, sort of, a, I think, a big splash when yeah. it came out. And, and they actually released a graphic novel um, not too long ago on, on at least the first half so far of Sapiens. And I haven't read the whole book, but I picked up the graphic novel. I was like, this is cool. Yeah. Anyway, what it talked about was this, you know, that there used to be a number of different uh, human species right on the planet. And of course, Neanderthal, Neanderthals are another and then there, but at the, around that time, or I guess early, you know, human days, there was uh, like four or five apparently. Yeah. And, and they died out, you know, for different reasons and surmised for different reasons. But the, the point that they make, I thought was interesting was that they talk about uh, Neanderthals were actually in some ways more, I don't know, more adept at like using tools. Apparently they were better at it initially. And yeah, yeah they, they were, they were more fiercely sort of communal and less trustworthy of strangers, right? Like they, they were less willing to sort of expand and, and band together outside of their more smaller bands. Whereas sapiens were willing to work together over, you know, larger social fields and, and mm-hmm. to cooperate. And what they make the case for is, so what allows them to cooperate? Shared mythology. Mm. That that was the, the reason why, you know, you can trust somebody and say, hey, you know, are you a threat or not? Well, hey, we believe the same thing okay, we can trust each other, right? Um, which is a very profound thing to to recognize that essentially humans can be coordinated en masse 
through mythology. Hmm. Right. And of course, yeah. religion might be a little one that's a little more clear for people on like, oh, yeah, of course, you know. Um, but I just think to me, that's very promising because all those people that have been saying things like, you know, we need a new story, you know, a new mythology, um, not necessarily one mythology to rule them all, but perhaps a, a story that people can all feel included in that allows for uh, a sort of shared effort towards, uh, you know, the common goal or common good. Um, I think Charles Eisenstein did capture that in some ways with his more beautiful world, our hearts know is possible mm-hmm. um, as a sort of, uh, as the flavor of that. Um, and I think that that does offer, you know, especially by coordinating through things like Zoom and social media, you know, we've seen the power of well-used hashtags, you know, Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the rest. Um, and so I, I, yeah, to me, that does offer some level of promise, but, you know, as a sort of de- decentralized, self-organized, emergent, um, response to to this moment, and it helps me to also think of also even masculinity, uh, or even men, right, as a as like one archetypal being, mm. right? Because if we think about it that way, and we think of say the feminine or women as like the Me Too was really like let's just say the archetypal feminine saying hell no, you know, to the archetypal masculine saying no more, like you've trespassed enough, you know, we're not yeah. going to stand for it anymore. And then there's the individual actors within that drama, of course, you know, Harvey Weinstein and others. Um, but like larger, at the larger level, the archetypal level, I think that to me was what, what happened. And right. so how do men respond to that? You know, both there's the personal part and then there's also the archetypal level. And I have talked to guys at, you know, Sacred Sons and others who say that, you know, they really developed that response, that organization around a response to me too. Because mm-hmm. in some ways it felt like the gauntlet had been thrown down and was like, what are you going to do about it now? And they're like, okay, well, we gotta, we gotta really work together as men, to yeah, to find a coherent response um, that is meaningful and sustaining, right? And and I think this is the moment we're still in. Yeah. What is the um, what is the archetype then that can be drawn up? So if you have uh, this collective like response to the abuses of men uh, in positions of domination or power. What is the archetypal response that men could draw upon that is not that, you know, uh, that does not draw from domination or the dominator culture? Uh, What we were referring to previously is maybe toxic masculinity, but the domination, right? Um, What would that archetype look like and where could we find it? Because I think, again, we need like a vision. And and you mentioned, was it Sacred Sons? Is that organization, that group? And that you said that was a direct response to the Me Too movement. I think that's beautiful that there is a direct response to it, that it isn't being sidestepped or like reacted against in like a, like, oh, that's not all men, you know, or, you know, that kind of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like, what does that archetype look like? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this is to me where I also admit my own limitations um, in that I've looked to conversations with queer folk that have been, I think, carrying some real necessary perspective and real necessary medicine. You know, I unpacked um, Little Nas X's video, Montero, right? Uh, not that long ago yeah. in the podcast because I, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. This is really a, a it was sort of a, I think, a, a healing, a mythic, mythically healing response to, in his case, you know, as a gay man, that he, he was under the oppressive, you know, judgment and guilt of his religious upbringing and that he reached the point in his life now as an artist that, yeah, he was able to, really, you know, mythically and, and visually traverse this binary of heaven and hell um, yeah. and, and in a sense, reclaim that 
integration back. And so I think that that's a huge part of it, that, that the medicine of the folks that don't fit in the binary so neatly, and I don't know how many of us neatly fit in the binary, but certainly there's sure. those that really, they, they, they do carry that medicine of, of integrating those polarities. Um, and I would say there's something spatially about the necessity of, I think, um, like, and this is something I learned a little while ago that I felt was really vital in when, if a man hasn't done enough integration in his, in himself and his own, I would just say core trust in, in his own masculinity and, and therefore his relationship with men. I think what often happens is there's a positionality that happens when, you know, there's been be- poor behavior and that is to essentially stand on the side of the, let's just call it the other in the sense, maybe say it was women saying, Hey, this, you know, this guy's wrong. Uh, he did these bad things. He's terrible. Uh, as as those who have been harmed, right? And I think for men who haven't done that work, they can stand on that side, on the opposite side, and say, "Yeah, that guy's terrible. I would never be that." Mm. Right? And and that's what it kind of sounds like. And I I recognize some of that too. Early days for me, as if that was an ally, right? To be like, "Yeah, yeah, he's terrible." Yeah. And what I found later, when after I started doing that work, is, and I think it's actually generally more powerful to be the one that stands up next to the man, it puts your arm around him, and actually says, "Hey." we can be better. Yeah. Right. We can be, we can be better. We can be better. Not you're awful because I think it's helpful to recognize it. Yeah. Like we could, all men have those qualities and those shadows and all these elements. And so in some sense, I think it's more helpful to be able to like to do that work together uh, is, is a real, I think a real integrated response. Uh, and I'll say that I did, had a conversation with uh, my friend Eamon on his podcast, life as a festival uh, after the stuff around Nako bear came out right Mm -hmm. uh about a year ago i think it was and in some ways that's that's what the response was it wasn't saying harm hadn't been committed or not like it sounded like there was real stories that had come out that there had been some harm uh in behaviors that you know were were not acceptable and it was important that they were called out and at the same time i think our conversation tried to walk that line between yeah respecting uh those who had been harmed and and centering them and then also kind of like bringing forth a necessary conversation that was beyond cancel culture because maybe the last thing I'll say too is drawing from my uh, conversation with this fellow Yogi Shambhu, uh, who on the podcast, he's one of the uh, sort of main forest defenders who's currently up at a place called uh, Fairy Creek. And they're trying to stop the logging of some of the last old growth rainforests, you know, in this area of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said something really beautifully, which was, you know, what they're trying to do is they're not standing up there saying, you know, loggers are terrible and the government's terrible. You know, you're, you're evil. They're just saying like, hey, we're trying to bring eyeballs of the world here to what's going on like to just what's happening and actually it's it's actually calling for more intimacy not Mm -hmm. to to cancel out because i think that inherently is what the healing looks like it's actually for more intimacy not to banish uh and to condemn which are tools of dominator culture yeah it seems like the path forward with like the me too movement and everything that that's created which is there's a lot of good things that came out of that and have continued to come out from that. And the, the thing that, yeah, there's this thing where as a, as a man, you're like, you want to separate yourself from the abusers be like, no, yeah. I'm not one of them. I but never, I think it's I would never not do that. And yeah. Yeah. Never, I would never do that. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of part of the problem too, is that there's like distinctly bad men and distinctly good men. And that there's just uh you just got to exercise the, the tumor, so to speak yeah. And that's not going to work and that's not going to bring 
us to a better place ultimately, I think, because that shadow you're talking about is, I think, in all of us. And not to say, again, this isn't about not centering the stories of survivors and those that have gone through this. That's not it. These things need to be called out because that abuse needs to end. That's the priority. But there's like not a lot of, there isn't always a lot of emphasis or thought about what comes after that. Like, um, yeah, because, well, and understandably why, because then it seems to, I don't know, yeah, to center the the ones that are causing the abuse. Yeah. Um, and, and not to say that that's also, like there is timing for everything. I guess that's it sure. too, right? And that's what I've learned from the restorative justice uh, lens is that, you know, at a certain point, time usually early when harm is committed it's like yeah there's a need to center that or see where harm is committed and to support them in that and then afterwards to really figure out okay <clears throat> what are all the factors that contributed to this harm happening right rather yeah. than oh yeah they're bad gone and suddenly you know call it salt um which is a reactive um often uh yeah like a, a domination-based approach which is you know those are the tools that are seem more readily available because that's a culture that we've grown up in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to settle, I think, with this. So we've been talking a little over an hour. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a lot that I think was explored in this, and there's probably a lot more that could be said. And I appreciate you for having this kind of conversation with me, mm. you know. Um, there's not. I, I can say there's not a lot of people I can draw on for, like, public type interviews that will necessarily will always go to these places with me. Mm. Um, but I, that's why I appreciate you on a personal level and on a professional level, I just deeply admire your work and I've mm. admired your work for, for years now. Um, and I'm really happy that you're in the podcasting medium now because you're very good at it. Mm. Um, I was listening to your interview with Stephen Jenkinson before we started this. And I'm really glad that you actually went to see him to mm. do it in person mm-hmm. yeah, it, was, it was really great like he's a i don't know he's i i've always enjoyed my interviews with him but he kind of wrecks me a little bit when i talk <laughs> to him <laughs> so yeah I, I always come out a little like not in a bad way but it just kind of always affects me in ways i don't and it can never fully anticipate so mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah thanks for that i appreciate the uh yeah it took a lot of effort it was like a five-hour drive there and back Oh God! Yeah, in a moment, and yeah, I'm glad. Still glad I did. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just say this. You know, check out. Of course, people should listen to your podcast, The Mythic Masculine, um, and they can find that at themythicmasculine.com. And your website is Mm ianmac.com. Any other things you got going on, projects, or any upcoming films, or anything else you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier the Love School, which is the film about yeah. Tamara, and that still is happening and, you know, continues to be developed. It looks like we are going to release a short, actually, um, more sooner than the feature, and that's okay. going to be focused more directly on Tamara's work, particularly on what it takes to regenerate trust mm. in a in a social field, um, which I think is really vital, especially now in the time of COVID, where there's been so much fragmentation and isolation and, and really the, the, the loss of trust, really, in a really deep way. So... Uh, people can check that out though still going to loveschoolfilm.com uh, as well as then yeah more information on the on the larger film too which is still coming but uh, okay that's the thing about film I mean they're they're all sagas you know yeah in my experience seems to be you've been working on that thing for quite a while so I'm sure it'll be good when it's finally like done done but Hope so you're getting there yeah yeah all right Ian thank you so much for the time yeah thanks Patrick good to be here
Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, You will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page that'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.